Hello from Chateau Picard. Just kidding. It's lockdown here in Austin, and it's episode 161 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday night. It's April Fool's Day. It's 2020. I'm, I'm Steve Vladek. This is not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> this is no joke. This, um, this, this podcast is not a joke. I don't know. Maybe it's an early episode title. I, so I, I see that you're in, in Chateau Picard. I'm impressed that you also managed to f- travel forward in time. Uh, uh, how did I travel forward in time? Well, because you're in Chateau Picard. Oh, and- I see what you're saying. I was like, wait a minute. Is it not April Fool's Day? And somebody, I thought for a second, maybe I'd been tricked by my family. Because I don't know about you, but I've lost all track of days of the week. Yes. Uh, let alone yes. calendar days. Yes. Um, I did notice that April Fool's humor was decidedly muted this year. Which I appreciated. Yeah. Um, I think that's that was probably for the best. Um, um, how are you guys holding up at Casa Vladek? Oh, you know, right. I, I, if I shout loud enough, you can probably hear me, right? Um, like, I, I occasionally do, but I don't want to make a big deal about it. Fair enough. Um, we're, we're fine. Um, you know, we've been uh, beset, or at least I've been beset with some really bad allergies, which has been a nice capper to all of this. Uh, the, the two full-time jobs plus running a daycare situation plus allergies has not exactly been fun. Yeah, the multitasking. Um, I, I will never complain about in this context or any other about having good employment, but um, man, it's a, it's a lot just uh, getting the transition to zoom. I, I will say actually, I, my students may disagree. It's not been that bad. I was really worried that the quality would be awful. Um, and it's, of just, course, it's, I'm, just, it's just a different experience. I mean, it's well, just, it's, it's emotionally draining in a way that regular classroom teaching isn't because you don't get the feedback. You're, you're sort of having to maintain the level of, of sort of performance and energy the whole time in, in keeping it going with very little in the way of human cues as to what people are paying attention to or where they're looking confused when they're not confused. Yeah, you I really, find that to be, uh, you, you lose the audience basically. And so you really, you realize when you're doing this, just how much we rely upon. And I think you and I, you know, we teach differently, but I think having taught alongside you for a semester, I do think we are similar in that we take a lot of verbal and nonverbal cues from our students in the classroom. I and think it's, yeah, that's right. Uh, listeners may be curious to know that actually, I think really the genesis of the podcast, which we yeah. probably said in an early episode, we co-taught one semester. And I, I don't think it was either of our best teaching because we, what we really found was we wanted to talk like we do on this show, which may or may not be the best pedagogy for an actual survey course. True. Uh, but I did, I did see firsthand, which something that doesn't surprise me, which like me, um, there's a lot of performance uh, in, in both of our teaching and it's weird to do it online. That said, I'm getting the hang of the, the hands of people, you know, volunteering and they're starting to warm up to it and I actually have appreciated the level of participation. It's been pretty yeah, good. I have to say, I, I found the chat box actually much more productive than I thought it would. So, so I've given my students the option of any of the three participation channels so they can just unmute themselves and start talking or they can raise their hand in Zoom or they can type stuff into the chat box. I've actually been able to do a pretty good job of monitoring the chat box which I think has a couple of virtues. One, the students don't have to like be on the spot. They can type out their question. Um, two, the other students can actually see the question typed. Um, and then three, I can sort of decide exactly when I want to, f- you know, put the answer into what I'm talking about. So I actually, you know, the one sort of real upside is I, I like how the chat function has worked. Um, 
But man, sitting at a, you know, I'm used to Bobby like marching around a classroom and expending all of this nervous yeah. energy. Sitting entirely still in the frame of the shot. I mean, you could turn your, you could change your setup, right? And you could just point it towards the open room. Yeah. And, but, and then just march around a lot. I think that would just be weird. Um, it would, definitely would be. That's kind of what, partially what I'm trying to encourage you to try. It would be hilarious. Um, no. Um, but anyway, so here, here we are for what I think is our latest ever episode, uh, a rare nighttime episode. Yeah, we, did a, a, we did an emergency pod one time at night. When, when Comey was fired. Yeah, maybe that was it. Um, God, wow. that feels like, you know. <laughs> yeah, we're centuries ago. So basically, our timing for these recordings is going to kind of bounce back and forth because with the different age of our kids, uh, each of us have different preferences as to when during the day or night it's, it's easiest to do this but preferences and or you know passive desperation <laughs> exactly by the way tonight's episode is unofficially sponsored by pearl snap a fine pilsner beer brought to us by austin beer works I think, it's appropriate, I, I think it's appropriate that your pearl snap was disappearing into the chateau picard background oh did it did it okay how about <laughs> can you see it now yes yeah, so if it's in front of your burnt orange shirt it works there well. you go there you go yeah i dressed up you guys sorry went for a very long bike ride and uh yeah, well, hey, look at my, I mean, you and I are both wearing, you know, Nike. We're well branded. Dry fit Nike workout people shirts. We're branded for Nike. Seriously, if only Nike sponsored this podcast. Um, have just as long as we're still digressing. Um, so we are in lockdown here in Austin, but we have the the order, which is now statewide lockdown. Um, mostly, but, sort of, but it exempts kind exercise. Of. You're allowed to go exercise. So I've been I've been breaking out the bike and and riding around a fair amount. Are you getting any exercise? I know you were an Orange Theory guy. So, so we have switched, we, I mean, K Karen was already sort of splitting between Orange Theory and Peloton. Um, and I have become very Peloton heavy um, since we've been, you know, marooned inside. So I'm, I'm Peloton curious. Is it fun? Is the bike relatively comfortable? Yeah. I mean, you know, we had been flywheel people. Um, and part of why we were flywheel people was because we had gone to the flywheel studio before we ever had a bike at home. And so we went to the flywheel studio in the domain. We really liked it. Then we, when Flywheel started offering a bike at home, we got that. Um, turns out Flywheel had basically stolen all of this stuff from Peloton. Um, and so as a condition of- the savings onto you. So as a condition of the settlement between Flywheel and Peloton, Flywheel had to basically pay for us to switch to Peloton. Um, and the service better? So I think there are, I think it's, it's high. Karen, I think would say unquestionably that it's better. I think it is certainly more volume. So there are a lot more people who are riding, there are more classes. Um, I think, you know, what's that? Um, Karen says the instructors are better. Um, uh, okay, that's right. Cool. And I think, you know, small stuff for me, the screen is a lot bigger that comes with the bike. So you actually feel much less like you're looking at a tiny little screen. Um, yeah, it helps. I, and the, I mean, I think just the diversity of offerings, there's just much more heterogeneity in what Peloton offers and what Flywheel is offering, which means, you know, when all you have is Peloton, I think there's, there's more options for, even if you just want to bike the classes and there, there's an increasing number of non-bike class options, so. Yeah, well, the market for this stuff is boom for obvious reasons, and I'm sure there are many listeners right now who are in fact listening to this while exercising. Good for y'all, we are all getting some exercise now, or at least I'm, I'm hoping everybody is. Um, it helps pass the time on lockdown. I mean, it's just, it's, it's such a weird, I, I, I think it's so, it's not just that, the, that all of this exposes, I think, some pretty radical class um, um, schisms in our society. It also exposes such radical sort of places in life 
for folks who are, you know, parents of young children versus parents of older children versus oh, not parents, you know, versus what kind of employment situation. I mean, it's just, you know, the cleavages of society have become so drawn out and blown up. And um, it does also, though, I mean, provoke some super clever, curious stuff. Bobby, did you see the British family that did One Day More? Um, but oh, wrote, no, but I would really like to see that. You got so to see that to me. It's on YouTube. So there's, right, a, Brit there's a British family that rewrote the lyrics to One Day More um, from <laughs> Les Mis to reflect the, their, the, 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 their boredom and sort of difficulties encountered during the, the sort of the, the lockdown in, in Britain. Oh, that, yeah. You know, you know what a Les Mis fan I am. So I, I, I think you, I think you, and some, some of the lines are, are, are very cute. Can, oh. you know, have, have you seen my brother's hair for, you know, <laughs> will we meet our, you know, will we meet our brothers there? <laughs> I think uh, we got to keep doing the video because I don't know about you, but I don't anticipate a haircut for quite some time. So Karen, um, point, I mean, Karen did point this out to me today that my hair is about as long as it ever gets. And, you know, I was due for a haircut actually today, as it turns out. And I think oh. it'll be, several months before anyone comes near this with scissors again. Definitely same for both of us, although we both have really short hair still as it stands, but I used to wear my hair a lot longer um, compared to this. And I guess I'm going back there and we'll see, we'll see what it, we'll see how much gray I've really got once it starts coming in. I, I've been debating. I feel, like, I feel like zoom highlights the gray. I'm not really enjoying this. Somebody's got to, there's got some Grecian formula overlay app that sort of like, you don't have the, you don't, like pitch black like it you, used to be. You don't have the touch up image checked on your screen um hold on let me see you can tell me and by the way I, I i'm entirely aware that at least some listeners were like good lord get to the national security law but okay, you know okay guys you have to understand we have no adult contact right and this is like so so bobby is like the first adult who isn't my wife who i've spoken to like for more than 30 seconds in i don't know all right, this here is comes the last the, time we recorded. Here comes touch up my appearance. Three, two, one. That <laughs> <laughs> made a huge so difference. Like a, got a little bit of a shave there. Kind of took away some of my But Bobby, are, are, are you going to grow a, a virus beard? Uh, I started to the other day. Look, um, I can show up by next week with a pretty good one. It won't take long. It takes me like um, months to grow a beard. Go back to natural. I don't, I don't like the touch of my appearance. That looked very... Uh, Snapchat-ish. Uh, All right. Well, so why don't we tell the folks what, what we're actually planning to talk about in this episode? Right, since so, we've, we've really uh, been, uh, this is, this is going to be one that Ben hates. We can put it in the show notes, you know, go to this moment to skip. So we've got a lot of interesting things to talk about. Go to the end. Uh, Inspector General Horowitz, who you may recall from such great hits as, hey, FBI, you really screwed up the Carter Page applications to the FISA court. Uh, they're back with a new hit single. Uh, this one is a follow-on hit that, focuses on the Woods procedure. So we're going to talk about the, uh, the March 30th Horowitz report. Uh, we're going to explain what the Woods procedures are, and we're going to explain what the report does and does not do. And then, and then, and then I'm going to shout as loud as I possibly can, I told you so. <laughs> and I will say, oh, it's not so bad. And, uh, you know, play our and role. I, and I will say it's exactly what I said all along, everybody. It, we'll have some fun with it, for sure. So we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, in pandemic land, you know, the big story legally the past week had been something we had just talked about in the last episode, which is these questions surrounding whether and to what extent there would be any pathway beyond advocacy for the president to try to override or make inroads against shelter in place orders that were, in the president's view, interfering with the economy or what have you. Um, that issue seems to have gone away for the time being. I'm sure it'll be back. 
but there are other issues. Uh, we've got a variety of individualized rights claims, not about quarantine and physical liberty, but about other rights that are running into measures that states are undertaking uh, in relation to COVID-19. So we'll, we'll note a few of these and, and bat that around a bit. Um, we've got the uh, a recurrence or an aftershock maybe of the uh, exchange of force with Iran where first a New York Times story and now a presidential tweet are re-raising or raising once again the possibility of Iranian proxies in Iraq either about to attack U.S. forces in the United States is, is um, you know, brandishing the sword, suggesting, please don't do that, do not do that, or we will respond, or maybe setting the groundwork for attacking anyways. Who knows? We're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit. Uh, we'll note a, uh, a National Security Division update, because we haven't done that in a long time. There was an interesting plea today. And then what we really want to talk to you and the main reason we scheduled the show is we've got to compare notes on Westworld episode three, which was a good one. And uh, I think without further ado, Inspector General Horowitz, this is the DOJ Inspector General. Um, Steve, what do you think? A quick recap about the, the first big hit from IG Horowitz. The Carter Page report, which this show devoted a lot of attention to, uh, documented the fact through an audit of the Carter Page FISA application originally and all the renewals, it documented that the FBI had really screwed up uh, in terms of providing the Justice Department National Security Division lawyers and therefore also the FISA court with a clear and complete picture uh, relating to uh, two things ultimately. One, in information that was at least arguably I would say somewhat exculpatory as it were for Carter Page, although I actually don't think it was terribly uh, material in that respect, but it was, it should have been disclosed and it wasn't, especially about his prior contacts with the CIA. And then related to that, there was a, an especially ugly episode with an FBI lawyer actually changing and misreporting what CIA had had to say about that. Uh, and then separately, uh, what we could call impeachment information about Chris Steele, and the larger process by which information from the Steele dossier was getting involved here. Um, there's no question this was a huge disaster in a context that predictably was going to be scrutinized. What, what a black eye for the FBI. Inspector General Horowitz said at the time in the course of pointing out these horrific flaws that there was a serious question, not about political motivation. He pointedly said he saw no evidence of political motivation for all this, but Precisely for that reason, a question about how much business as usual might this be for FBI? And this was a, uh, a question he said that his office would examine by conducting a, a sample of counterterrorism and counterintelligence or, or generic foreign intelligence, um, FISA applications for similar Title I scenarios from the past, and they would audit a sample of these and then eventually report on, was it a Carter Page specific problem? Or was it actually there? Was that actually emblematic or uh, reflective of a larger pattern of shoddy procedure in the, on the part of FBI field offices pushing up this information to FBI HQ, FBI HQ not doing enough to vet the information, and then putting first in the first instance the Justice Department National Security Division, and then in the ultimate instance the FISA court in an incomplete position to trust or to rely on the information being put forward. 
So what's happened now is we've got the first fruit from his investigation. Uh, to be clear, this is just the beginning. He's, he's asking a variety of questions. Question one, which he's now immediately reporting on, is the result of, of examining 29 files selected out of a batch of some 700 across eight field offices covering a five-year period, all of them completed FISA Title I, either, either wiretapping or physical search orders. Um, and there's, there's good news and there's bad news. So the, the good news is we have less reason to worry that the FBI had been engaged in anything politically motivated when they screwed up with Carter Page. The bad news is on the particular <laughs> issue that we're examining here, it looks like a widespread problem of shoddy process. The particular thing they were looking at, and here I think this, I'm, I think we'll agree about this goes, this goes this far, it doesn't go all the way. They were examining only, and purposefully at this stage only, compliance with the so-called Woods procedures. And they go out of their way to say, we're not, we're, we're not even looking at the completeness or the propriety of what actually went before the court. We're just examining, do the Woods procedures do what they're supposed to do? And the answer is no. In all 25 instances, we all, I think 29 cases they selected, four of them, nobody can find the files. Nobody, <laughs> in fact, I think they yeah, say- Which is also least, confidence inspiring. Right, right. They, they're like, uh, I don't know where we put those. And then in one of them, they're like, we're not sure there ever was a file. And then, so you've got 25 to work with and they found errors in all, apparently substantial errors in, in all 25 of them. Although they go out of their way to say, we're not saying that there was anything um, in the nature of a material, material error in any one, but there were clear process errors. That's gonna be comfort to some, not to others. I get that, but I really wanna foot stomp this. They say explicitly, it's not that they're finding any material misrepresentations or omissions. They're not passing any judgment on that. They're saying that it's clear that in every instance, the procedures weren't fully complied with. That is bad. And of course, if that's happening systematically, as this sampling seems to document that it does happen systematically, that means that the trust, whatever trust value and credibility and faith in the process one has in light of the existence of the Woods procedures, uh, at least is at risk. Now, what are the Woods procedures? Uh, they were enacted in April 2001 after an ugly episode in which it became known after the fact that FBI field office personnel had pushed forward a file to HQ and HQ had pushed forward to the Justice Department and the Justice Department had pushed forward to the FISA court um, an application to surveil and then, by the way, this is all about U.S. person targets and only about U.S. person targets. So in that case, they were uh, targeting a U.S. person and they neglected to reveal that the person was somebody who'd been or maybe was a confidential informant for FBI criminal investigators. So they, they omitted that material fact. They omitted some other information of a, of a like kind about what was in their files already about the guy. That was the particular error. So not just a general sense of, of omissions and shoddy process, but a particular kind. And FBI general counsel's office lawyer and, and I think national security branch lawyer, uh, Michael Woods at the time was tasked with drafting a process that would help guard against this as a procedural or bureaucratic matter. And it's been known ever since as the Woods procedures and the, the documentation that's generated is, is generally known as the Woods file. So there's the FISA application file 
that's the evidence. And then the Woods file you should think of as like a, a backstopping, a corollary, a documentation that the things that are in the field office's agent's declaration and representation about the facts, that the right questions have been asked both about the veracity or the or rather the, the basis or foundation for the facts represented in there. And of course, the ER problem, by the way, is this somebody we have a relationship with already? Is there a criminal investigation open? That sort of thing. That's the process that the Inspector General has not documented, has been fouled up to some degree to indeterminate effect, but has been fouled up in every instance they looked at through a sampling model. Bad news. Steve, how, how worried should we be about this? Very. Um, I mean, I think, I, you know, the, obviously the Trumpistas want to say, see, look, it's all Obama's fault. Um, oh, is it, it's Obama's fault? All well, right. yeah, because most of the applications that, I think almost all the applications Horowitz looked at were during the Obama administration. Um, they, they necessarily have to be, right? Because they went back a certain date range. Although I think it's one to five years, so surely some in that sample, I'm not great at math, but I'm pretty sure we've been in the Trump administration for 74, no, three years now in two months. Feels like 74. Um, yes, some of them must be from, from more recent time. So I mean, I think we do, I mean, we have to back up and say um, that the people like me, right? And I, and I don't think it's just me. Right. Oh, wait, hold on. I'm sorry. I just looked. It, it, their, their period closed in, oh no, we closed September 2019. So there so, should be some Trumpies in there too. Okay. So I just want to, I mean, we've talked about this before um, and we'll talk about it again. I am much more skeptical historically than you have been um, about the extent to which we should trust the process, right? And the extent to which um, internal government checks um, are, if not presumptively adequate, at least entitled to some general assumption of relative adequacy, because um, we want to assume that government officers act in good faith. We want to assume that people follow the rules, yada, yada, yada. And my, and it's not just me, but I'm, I'm just, I'm, I just don't want to put words in other people's mouth, but my concern for about as long as I've, you know, been familiar with FISA is that it's not about good faith versus bad faith. It's about the lack of adversarialness. Um, and that, you know, even officers who have no malice um, might cut corners, might sort of not dot the I's and cross the T's in circumstances where literally no one is going to call them out on it. Um, and where, you know, national security is at stake. Um, whether because they think it's not important enough, whether because they're too busy, you know, negligence, malice, it doesn't matter. The process is set up for these kinds of flaws to exist. And so the question to me, and, and we had this conversation after the last, after the, the last um, Horowitz report about my concern that DOJ's proposals for ramping up internal oversight and internal checks were going to be inadequate. Um, because no matter how strong the internal oversight is, it's still internal. Um, and you don't have what we have in, say, a criminal court where you have meaningful adversarial process. Um, you don't have, I think I can safely say this, the kind of aggressive, vigorous congressional oversight that Congress intended when it created the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. And there are different reasons why that's been true. And so, you know, I hate to say this, Bobby, but I think this was inevitable. Um, 
and that you know as much as i don't want don't support the narrative that obama was out to get trump through carter page because i actually believe in things like logic and common sense um i think it might actually be a good thing for the broader conversation that this happened because maybe finally more folks will come around to what used to be my idiosyncratic maybe still is my idiosyncratic point of view that this process just is never going to work adequately on its own what is it you would want to see okay so we should articulate what you and i know is the the countervailing consideration that that acts as the counterweight in this process um obviously we're, we're not going to move not just as a as a predictive matter but i'm suggesting as a merits matter we not only are not going to but should not move to a situation in which the proposed target of the surveillance is is involved in any way and, and i don't know anyone who would argue otherwise because that's tantamount to just not doing it at all um what is it you think would be a reasonable way to enable the the requisite speed and efficiency of trying to monitor foreign agents, foreign intelligence threats, foreign terrorism threats, uh, without tipping off uh, in advance. Are you are you interested in having uh, creating more ex ante anticipation of review by creating stronger post hoc tools? Do you want to instead see more ex ante or contemporaneous tools? So. Uh, I mean, I think this actually dovetails with stuff I've written about more generally. I think national security law is a field of law where ex ante tools are much harder to defend normatively, right, than ex post tools. Because, you know, in this context, I mean, what would ex ante tools look like? You're not going to put a lawyer in the FISA court to argue against the government's FISA application um, because, you you know, the... <laughs> Who's going to know who the you know who's going to know who the target is besides the government? Um, no, I mean I think the the right way to do this, Bobby, is a series of after the fact checking and auditing mechanisms that exert hydraulic pressure on the process to be cleaner on the front end. And so instead of a one-off Horwitz audit, right? What about regular audits um, of of individual of a randomly selected cross section of Title One applications? So, for example, taking exactly what's done here and having this be a statutorily required recurring process that ensures that an agent who's in a huge rush, is under tremendous pressure, who puts their life on the line on a regular basis and is worried about other people's lives, nonetheless knows that, that it's not just an easy out where you can blow off something. Yeah, yeah, with procedures, fill in the blank. I, I said a few words, now on to the thing I want to work on, but rather knows that there's a decent chance it happens all the time that somebody's case from last year gets pulled for audit and then you get blasted and it looks bad on review. Uh, and if you know that's the case, then you, you tick the needle over a little bit into how much time and effort the agents will put into to actually following the procedures, which on their face are good procedures. It's the execution we're being told here is, is shoddy. Um, I think that actually to me sounds pretty reasonable. Um, you know, I, I am not moving closer to your view. I think both of us are just trying to keep in the same relative distance between us in terms of general level of trust. I'm assuming your general level of trust is going down. Um, mine's moving. Mine's moving some. We, we may just be moving in lockstep, a lowering tide, lowering all boats proportionally. Um, Although I started much lower. Yeah, you're starting much lower. Uh, I'm starting much higher. And But I nonetheless think what you're describing sounds pretty reasonable and frankly, 
not particularly disruptive. I appreciate that you're focusing on ex post procedures as opposed to what the usual argument you hear people say is, oh, we got to put an, an amicus in there in all settings to litigate the way that America does litigation. All right, hold on. I have some requests for you to go fill out. I've got a lot of paperwork for you now to consider before. So, we wait, but, but so, so, so I said, I said I had three ideas. I want to sort of get them all. On okay, the table. that was just one. Right. All so right. one is one is um, mandate by statute periodic random audits of Title One applications. Um, the second, and this is this is going to sort of be in some tension with what you just said, but in the cases in which there already is authority to appoint an amicus. I would go back to the original proposal in the what was called the Leahy Bill in the 2015 FISA reform, 2014-2015 FISA reform, and make the amicus not an amicus, make it mandatory. Um, not in all cases, Bobby, for the reasons you say, but stop having this sort of mechanism where it depends upon the court saying, I need help, right, as opposed to mandating the participation, at least in those cases where the statute already allows such participation, which is to say, cases raising novel questions of law or important questions of law under the statute. And would, then the you, sorry. Before we get to the third one, just to ask a question about that one. Yeah. Would you, would you agree that the, uh, this, both Horowitz reports, very, prob very problematic findings, they're not about that. That to so, me is about um, the sorts of issues that were raised that's right, by- That's right, that's right. And, 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 it's, and, and it's not clear to me that in amicus participating in the FISA court process, even in a Title I case like a Carter Page type case, would have anywhere near enough information to actually, you know, point out the things that Horowitz can point out from behind the scenes as the Inspector General. Yeah, so I'd be, I'd be very opposed to that sort of uh, participation. Right, um, which is why it should be, you know, sort of in the cases where the statute already exists, just ma just make it a stronger power. But then third, and this is the one that I think comes back to Title I. Um, so, you know, but I think listeners may not sort of follow this jot and tittle, um, that FISA itself provides a procedure in any criminal case in which the government wants to introduce evidence derived from FISA for the defendant to collaterally attack the underlying FISA warrant, um, right? That the, the statute, I think it's 1806F, 50 USC section 1806F, mm -hmm. um, provides at least what looks like it's supposed to be what's called a Franks hearing. This is named after the, the 1978 Supreme Court case, Franks versus Delaware. And the idea is that if the defendant can offer some non-speculative, um, some sort of plausible reason for thinking that there might be a problem with the warrant application, then he, or at least his security cleared lawyer, should be allowed to look at the underlying application in order to help the judge determine whether it was invalid. Um, this provision has been read quite narrowly by the courts that have carefully considered it. I think, Bobby, you might remember the Seventh Circuit's 2014 decision in the Daoud case, mm -hmm. um, which was the most prominent one, where Judge Posner really went after a district judge um, who had, the, the district judge basically said, in order to know which materials are relevant to the Franks hearing, I need the security cleared defense lawyer to be able to see the whole application. Um, and Posner says, that's totally crazy. Um, and read 1806F incredibly narrowly. I think it's worth having a conversation, Bobby, about whether 1806F is actually serving its purpose and whether one of the other ways to put pressure on the government to really have its ducks in a row when it's pursuing a FISA application is to put more teeth into the defendant's right 
to collaterally attack the application if and when the government's going to use evidence against him in a criminal trial. Now, I should say, I mean, and this is not going to surprise anyone, it's a tiny fraction yeah. of FISA cases that ever end up in that context where the government's trying to bring 1806 evidence, uh, trying to bring FISA evidence into a criminal case, triggering 1806F. But Bobby, again, I think the hydraulic pressure of having that out there and of the government knowing that this application could one day be meaningfully scrutinized by an Article Three civilian, you know, non-FISA court judge in the context of a motion to suppress. Um, you know, I, I have to think that would have a salutary effect on the, the, the rigor and the procedural propriety of what the government does. So would, would you feel equally comfortable if, so the status quo is that it's clear the judge certainly has authority to consider it. It's a question of whether the judge does it ex parte, which is what always happens, or if instead the judge actually allows some adversariality in the review of the file. Um, would you be more or less satisfied if there was an amicus in that context so that it was not the defendant's own lawyer, because you put the defendant's own lawyer in a pretty impossible position if they get exposed to him from, like, first of all, the majority of these cases, they're not going to be in a position to have the clearances and it's going to gum up the works to try to get them to that position. Is that Maybe true? If, Wait, is, is that true that in a majority of these cases, the defendant doesn't have the security clear defense counsel? I don't know. I don't know. That's just my assumption. That was my, 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 my anecdotal experience, Bobby, and, and anecdotes are not data, but my anecdotal experience, the cases I'm familiar with all invariably involve security clear defense counsel. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to throw you off. No, no, that's good. It's a, it's a fair point. Cause I was asserting it like it was empirically documented. I don't know. So I'm, I'm happy to, let's just assume this. Otherwise they've all got clearance. They also have a duty to zealously represent their clients and you put them in a very difficult, difficult ethical position. They're the ones best situated to, uh, to look for the, the problems, of course, because they know the case best. And Amicus is at a huge disadvantage. On the other hand, putting them in a position to potentially be exposed to information that the client may not be told is, uh, as we learned in, say, the Musawi litigation and some other settings, that can be really problematic too. Um, but I also think you're just much more likely to actually get such an innovation if the 1806F motion to get some adversariality involved ran ran towards getting uh, one of the standing amicus uh, persons involved. Now, that said, for I all I that. know, that's actually, I think that's already within the court's authority and it may be something they could do without any type of uh, obligation. But, but, you could make but, it mandatory. You could make it mandatory. You could also sort of tie the existing amicus provisions in the FISA court to 1806F in civilian court. I mean, yeah. I just, I just, I think there are there are ways, Bobby, that would not dramatically upset the government's internal processes, where you could put some real teeth into some of the few sort of back end checking mechanisms that are out there. That I think would go a long way toward incentivizing a sort of reduction of shenanigans, a reduction of sloppiness, um, and much more care on the government's part. So for my, my bottom line is I think the Venn diagram that has the happiest intersection of things that maybe could be done that wouldn't cause the government side to, you know, fight to the last, to the last breath, <laughs> try to avoid this. Um, and actually would really yield some pressure would be some version of institutionalized required uh, regular sampling and auditing like what we're seeing here. And you could, you can calibrate that. You could make it have more or less bite. If you really wanted to have, have it have bite, you would uh, include in the process some sort of reporting to the FISA court 
of the names of the agents that were found to have defectively complied with, I mean, that'd be a pretty, that would actually be a very heavy duty measure to actually start naming names to the judges as to who hadn't done their job adequately in the past and putting them in effect, maybe not on a blacklist, but on a, on a watch list, as it were, uh, where, where the credibility of the application might be much less than it was when that person's involved. That begins to directly impinge on the career pathways of the agents invo involved in this sort of thing. Um, I think that would have a lot of effect, maybe almost too much, I don't know, but it would certainly, uh, it would accentuate things. And I'd rather see that sort of measure, and I think they're more likely to get somewhere with that kind of measure than the other possibilities. All this no, is to say, but, but, but all of this is to say that not for the first time and not for the last time, let me just point out one more time, this is what the FISA reform conversation ought to be about. And, you know, the sort of the hijacking of the three and a half expiring and now I guess expired provisions. Yeah. Um, right. Like if this is the debate people want to have, great, let's have it. The problem is, is that this isn't the political, this isn't the headline the Republicans want. Right. No, this isn't this isn't the bad Obama that Republicans want. This is actually the you know, the call is coming from inside the house. The whole ship is 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 the problem. So I think there's two poisonous narratives out of the White House. Uh, one is the one is the blame Obama thing you just said. But I think it's 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 wet. Yeah, there is that that'll always that's that old chestnut will keep coming back for this president. Um, there's a much more clear and present danger in his eyes, and that's the existence of career personnel who are not in it for personal loyalty to him, who are in the various institutions associated with the intelligence community or what, what he has successfully rebranded as the deep state and built up uh, conspiracy paranoid memes and, and themes around that. And I think that the, that is the thing that actually really drives things like the president's intervention by tweet that derailed the process of renewing the, the FISA provisions that you just mentioned. Um, you actually remind me of something I want to pitch. I'll, I'll try to write something about this for Lawfare tomorrow. Um, so, lone time. Wolf, eh, tomorrow's not a class day, so I can recapture a little time. Lone Wolf for foreign intelligence uh, investigations, that's expired. That's not the end of the world. It, it wasn't actively being used. It was, I thought it was a good idea. The Masawi fact pattern demonstrates why it's a good idea, but they seem to be getting by without it. So that can, we can live without that, presumably. Roving wiretaps, it's ridiculous that this isn't available to foreign intelligence investigators because it's totally available and no one's complaining in any kind of impactful way to law enforcement investigators. It's used all the time that way. Um, there's no good reason that it's not available for foreign intelligence investigations. And it wasn't the basis for any um, groundswell of opposition. Um, Section 215 is two different things. There's, there's sort of regular records request, and then there's the call detail records program, most recently uh, under the rubric of the USA Freedom Act. The USA Freedom Act stuff and, and the effort to do contact chaining, that seems such a mess. It's not the end of the world that it's not available now because it's not been available for a while because of all the problems associated with it. But the baseline business records uh, request authority has now defaulted back to the uh, bizarrely narrow grounds as it stood in 1998. Um, so I wanna know for both roving wiretaps and for the lost territory of business records, it would be great from a good government perspective to be able to make a judgment about what sort of uh, workarounds have or will prove to be available to the government to get 
ordinarily normal information you'd want to get with those tools for counterintelligence and counterterrorism investigations. Are there workarounds? How much additional cost, if any, in terms of cost in money terms or manpower or whatever it is, difficulty? Um, is it the case that maybe there isn't a perfect workaround and that we're actually experiencing some shortfalls? Uh, I think there's one institution that's going to be in a position to watch what what Stuart Baker on his podcast called the other day, the natural experiment we're now under, uh, thanks to the sunset. Um, I think the PCLOB could do an amazing service and maybe is going to do this service, I hope. I'm, this is my plea, that they begin systematically exploring using their special access and their special foundation of knowledge uh, to determine what the real downside proves to be an actual practice. It's too soon to tell. Um, there are probably some authorities that are still ongoing because they haven't expired yet in terms of orders that uh, were in place at the time this expired. Over time, eventually, you're going to have to find other workarounds if you're FBI agents. And PCLOB could monitor this and could make, a, I think, a credible report to the public and to Congress about just how harmful or maybe not harmful it turns out to be to have lost these authorities. So, PCLOB, there's your assignment. Steve, what else should we talk about? So I want to do a, we should do a pandemic lightning round, but before we get there, do you want to talk briefly about uh, um, upon information and belief, things are, things are going interesting in Iran? Yeah, so- Or with Iran? Yeah, we mentioned at the top of the show that there's saber rattling. It's a phrase I was grasping for earlier and I couldn't come up with it. How embarrassing. Uh, there is saber rattling afoot. It's afoot on Twitter today, um, but it didn't begin there actually. The, the story I think is traces back to the, I think it was the 27th New York Times article, Mark Mazzetti and Eric Schmidt um, reporting that DOD, DOD has an, an order in place to begin planning for retaliatory or preemptive, I'm not sure which way to characterize it, uh, operations again against Kitab Hezbollah. This is the same Iraqi-based proxy group supported by the Iranian um, forces, That the, the same group that was supposed to be the predicate for the last exchange of force where we ended up killing General Soleimani on the ground that he was working through this group and maybe others, uh, conducting already some attacks on U.S. forces and planning further ones. And suddenly there's this report in the, the money paragraph, and it talks about how uh, there's been a wave of intelligence lately suggesting that Kateb Hezbollah is active again in planning to attack U.S. forces. And so this article, which could be viewed as a leak that DOD did not want to be out there, or could be viewed as, as something they did want out there as a initial form of credible saber rattling to the Iranians and to their, and to their proxies, um, that we are actively prepared to, to respond. And then Trump gets in on it. Um, and it's interesting because there's a lot of ways you can parse that. Is that just Trump trying to change the dialogue from, uh, from the gross underperformance on pandemic response? Is it, is it actually him responding to something he saw on TV? Is it actually part of a, a larger, more planned process of signaling to the Iranians that, if you are in fact, if, you're, if your proxies are planning to do something, we're putting you on notice, we are going to strike back. And by, by doing it publicly from the president this way, we're more credibly committed to doing it. So don't do it. Um, we're not in any position to judge it. We can speculate across all those things. I find it perfectly plausible to believe that in fact, there is some of this threat, that there really, really is intelligence that 
from the DOD perspective, at least, this is something they're actively needing to plan for. Um, and the fact that Trump's gotten in on the action through his Twitter feed, um, it's not, that doesn't taint it. It, I guess it taints it a little bit, but it doesn't, it doesn't reduce in my mind the possibility that this is actually an area where there is a serious problem and a good need to, to warn the Iranians. What do you think? Maybe, but I mean, the, the, the whole- I've made it sound as good as I could to try to box you in. Yeah, I mean, here's my, let me let me sort of be someone else put 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 it this way on Twitter. The language of the tweet upon information and belief, um, sure sounds like something you might read in an intelligence report, all right? I mean, it's 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 what lawyers do, for example, when we want to say something that we can't actually back up with hard evidence in a in a legal pleading. We say, upon information and belief, I believe Chesney was out biking today. Um, it's a term of art in the civil procedure context for, for when you don't necessarily have the firsthand information. I don't impute that usage to Trump at all. I don't, I don't, I draw no inferences from the weird verbiage and formulations and circumlocutions he, uh, he employs in his tweets. I, I think that if I was looking at it in a void without the benefit of the Mazzetti Schmidt article, which is all about DOD orders actually given uh, you know, military intelligence about the threat picture downrange in Iraq. That to me gives this whole thing a level of, I'm not saying that that makes it all true. I'm saying that makes it much more credible than what I would have thought if just out of the blue, we had a tweet from Trump saying, I'm hearing all the best people are telling me, you know, which is the way it would, would often sound coming from him. Just what we need. <laughs> Well, you know, it is a reminder that the world doesn't stop just because the world has stopped. Um, and indeed, there's especially, especially as COVID-19 begins to work its way through our armed forces, uh, I think we're all following the story, or at least some of us, and I know how much you're interested in our overseas places like Guam. So you know the USS Teddy Roosevelt and Guam are in this uh, awkward sort of situation where there's at least 700 plus sailors who are infected on the Roosevelt and, and the uh, Navy is looking to figure out what to do about this. This is the beginning of something that's going to sweep through certainly uh, naval vessels. I, I can't imagine how you could, how you could really get anything resembling social distancing out of a vessel uh, with any kind of large crew complement. And it's probably going to happen on bases as well to a greater extent than it, than it has so far. And in that environment, if, if the news becomes that throughout our overseas deployed forces, we just have this huge problem and have had to go into sort of a lockdown, which makes operations very difficult, um, there's an opportunity there for someone who really wants to make mischief, uh, perhaps, who might feel that this is a window in which American America's always on overpowering conventional deterrent actually isn't what it normally is. It's, it's a very state, scary state of affairs. And it's also scary because the commander in chief might decide he needs to do something to uh, something, something scary to, to intimidate people at a time when our conventional forces are um, hamstrung by the virus. You know, I, I like having zoom so that there will be a record of, of the, uh, of the faces <laughs> that are made here. I, you know, I've been trying to find in, in, in the few, I, I've, I've tried to look now twice, I think. I sent a tweet maybe about a year ago about how terrified I was if Trump ever got a real genuine national security crisis, because even the fake ones he was bungling. Right. And, well, and, and pandemic is, 
is proof of your reason to be concerned. Um, and I just, I mean, the, I, I feel despair, Bobby, because I just, I would have thought, I, you know, we've had, what's, what's the line, right, that Trump crosses that finally, you know, gets the sort of the base to turn on him. And I'm increasingly convinced that there isn't one because, you know, I would think this kind of mismanagement of a crisis would be pretty darn indicting. But instead, the basis response is to accept all of these false narratives that are being put out about why it wasn't really mismanagement, why it's Obama's fault we don't have enough masks. And Trump was on it from the beginning because, after all, he ordered those restrictions of flights from China. I mean... Let me... Can I tease out two different themes or points you were making there? Yeah, sure. So so the, the key thing is, what would it take for likely Republican voters to not want to continue supporting him. Um, but the answer to that question, and, and why isn't this gross mismanagement in the most, in, arguably the most important issue of our times, how, how could this not be enough? And the answer is in what you then said about accepting narratives. No, one's, no one is consciously choosing to accept a false narrative People are accepting narratives that are false and then making judgments, having believed these things. I mean, actually, you know, sure, maybe there are some people who are actually saying, yeah, I will choose to believe false things. But the baseline problem is a lot of people who are in an information environment that's flooding them with signals and symbols and information that is, that is inaccurate or that is spun in a way to deflect blame, deflect responsibility, to change the story from one day to the next as to what the president's commitments are on this. Right, right. But, but, but I mean, but there's like, I mean, have you ever read the book, Every Man Dies Alone? (laughs) Sounds fun, but no. So this is um, Hans Falada, and it's this incredibly moving book. It it was made into a movie a couple years ago called Postcards from Berlin, um, starring Brendan Gibson. Um, And... It's about parents of a German soldier who dies during World War II and the sort of the, the, the protest movement they start. Um, but one of the things it points out is that, you know, a lot of Germans sort of figured out that the war wasn't going well, not because anyone was telling them that, but because the cities where the battles, like the news reports were telling them of these massive battles and the, cities, closer. And the cities were moving west. Um, like, we keep choosing to fight in closer locations. This is a, and so I just, you know, I, I understand that there's an information ecosystem that is pumping out and re, you know, sort of false information. Um, the problem is, is that th- even that ecosystem, Bobby has shifted like, you know, Fox in the last couple of days, right. Has been much more like not a hoax, not the flu. This is a really big deal. Hundreds right. of thousands of people might die. Oh, even, and, even the president now, right. You know, and, 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 and to which my response is, okay, so why assume someone who, who you know, has made a conscious decision to get all of their news from a source like Fox, right? Have they not noticed that all the things they were told a month ago are now the opposite, that they're now being told the opposite of what they were told a month ago? Have they, have they no like curiosity about what changed between- The missing piece in that- is so it's all in the question of how is it framed as to why the answer now is x whereas before it was y and if the answer is if the answer to that question in subtle but um ubiquitous ways 
is is sent with the message of couldn't have known, didn't know, now it's different, what's clear. If that's what they're being messaged, then they're going to absorb that. And that's ridiculous, of course. But the, the point being that I guess where I think we have common ground is, or at least I think the, the, the core problem is, is this poisonous information environment. Yeah. And, it, and it's a real problem for someone like me. I'm very much a marketplace of ideas, freedom of speech person. And so it, it leaves me at sixes and sevens looking at the situation where you've got such a powerful set of megaphones across talk radio, social media, but above all Fox News um, and key personalities there consistently abetting what amounts to a cover up for uh, fatal incompetence. And, and, and now not just fatal as to people's lives, but also fatal as to the very issue that the, the president cares about most, the, the economy. Yeah. Um, anyways, we're not wow. gonna I got you fired up. Okay. Well, yes. it's because it's it's Picard's right over my shoulder. And it, you, feel, right. you, you feel his moral righteousness just weighing on you. I do. That's um, all right. So speaking of the pandemic. I saw the burnt orange in, in Chateau Picard's very burnt orange. I like that. Um, really quickly on the pandemic front, I just want to flag to, you know, you mentioned at the top, some of the litigation, we're starting to see lawsuits arising out of some of these shelter in place slash stay safe, stay home orders. And it's interesting to me, Bobby, because the two big ones, at least here in Texas so far, have been what we might call sort of, I don't know, social cause litigation. Um, they relate to the culture wars, certainly. Yes, culture war, right? So, so one is a lawsuit by this pastor um, in Houston, um, challenging Harris County's, I think now mooted, um, stay at home order, which did not exempt churches on the Was ground. That exercise claim? Yes. On the ground that not being able to congregate in your church, um, is a violation of the free exercise clause to which I say, um, that okay. seems like just like, I mean, people file suits, the fire code applies to church buildings as much as other buildings. By extension, the well, police powers the, of the state when reasonably the, exercised for the moment. So, so you know, someone um, I think it was Gotham Hans on on Twitter pointed out um, that you know this is the Supreme Court has a case it has already granted for next term about whether it should revisit Employment Division versus Smith. Um, and it's, but even even if it did, there's no way that results in now churches are literally immune from even the fire code you don't have to have sprinklers you could pack in endless people with no no fires and, and by extension the the idea that the state's mighty powers over public health in the context of a global pandemic that's destroying lives in the economy that that would give way to the free exercise interest in a context where the alternative is what i've been doing every sunday morning which is watching my services online it strikes me as preposterous. Although I'm, excited, I, I'm excited for my Zoom Seder. Um, <laughs> so then the other, sort of the other I, side of the I'm, culture. I'm excited war. for Zeester. There you go. So the other side of the culture war is this case in Austin. Challenge. So Texas, I think along with Ohio and a couple of other states have not just banned elective medical procedures during this emergency, but have defined elective procedures to include abortions. Um, which, let me just say, I, I don't, I don't want to get anywhere near the well-joined debate over abortion. Um, 
but so long as abortion is a legally available procedure, it is not elective in the sense that you can't wait, right, you know, six or seven months or nine months to have the procedure. Um, I, I get that there are people who want to get rid of all abortions, and so we'll, we'll find any possible basis for doing so, but we're not there yet. I assume, so Judge Yackel, I assume, reasoned exactly that way in, in rejecting and in, in, uh, going against the governor on that issue, right? So, Yackel, so Judge Yackel here in Austin issued a, a temporary restraining order yesterday. Um, Attorney General Paxton ran right to the Fifth Circuit and got an administrative stay. I'm sorry, Yackel ruled on Monday. This is why the days are really killing me. Yeah. Yackel ruled Monday. Yesterday afternoon, a, a divided three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit um, granted an administrative stay basically of the TRO for long enough to decide whether they're going to grant the state's emergency petition for writ of mandamus. That briefing is due, Bobby, I think by the end of the day tomorrow. So I suspect we'll get some decision by the Fifth Circuit on Friday. Um, I don't doubt that whoever loses is then going to try to get this up to the Supreme sure. Court. Sure. Um, there's, a, there's a political economy to this kind of litigation, a, a true blue political economy. But I'll just say, I, I will just say, and, and this is me, not you, because I think, you know, the, there are places where our views on these issues differ. I will just say that a state that has still not issued a clearly mandated stay home order, and that has defined gun stores as essential businesses, but is arguing in court that it can't treat abortions, as essential medical procedures because that would unduly burden the providers from providing COVID-19 services. I, I think there's a little bit of chutzpah in these arguments. I think we all know what's really going on here is it's hostility to abortion, and that's fine, but that's not where the Supreme Court's jurisprudence is at this moment. Yeah, so I, I will certainly agree that th this, is, this is more about politics, as I said. Um, I want to come back to, you said you didn't feel that the state actually has, has really embraced at the state level, uh, state home. I thought we had a statewide, we now have a statewide order. So Abbott's Actually, order is I weird. I kind of have the impression that, so in contrast to Governor Santos in Florida. He changed today. Huh? He, so DeSantis, DeSantis. No, yeah. right. But in, con in contrast to Governor Santos in Florida, I feel that Governor Abbott's been very forward-leaning, is relatively speaking, certainly for a red state Republican governor, he's been very responsible, I feel like, on uh, first- you know, at, at no point, despite his predilections to, shall we say, uh, not defer to localities, um, at no point has he interfered with any city or county's earlier moves to shelter in place and business closure. He's been pretty supportive. He, he's he's that's not true. I think that's totally true. It's not true. The 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 provision exempting religious gatherings in the statewide order was entirely meant to get rid of that part of the Harris County order that was being challenged in court. How is that inconsistent with anything I just said? Let me you let said, me you, said, you said you said none of his order was meant to displace or override what localities had been oh, doing. No, because I'm talking about shelter in place. Look, his he was trying to moot. He said he was I'm trying to I think what I just did mooted that litigation. With the caveat for this, what I would consider a very narrow issue about what's the status of church assemblies from the beginning, whereas there are some governors who are talking only about the economy, you got to get out there and support the economy. He has been talking about the seriousness of this threat. He asked it, it to be decided at a local level. We crossed two time, stones where, time zones, we're a huge state. 
He left it to be decided locally early on. And at a certain point when it appeared that some counties or some smaller towns weren't doing what they needed to, he was very quick. He didn't have to be you know, pressured in any way uh, through protest movements, objecting to his failure to take it seriously, whereas we have seen that in a number of other states. So I, I defend the governor on this one, Steve. Fair enough. I think we will have to agree to disagree because I think he went out of his way to not call the state a shelter in place order. And I think there are reasons why he did that. Yeah, we um, disagree. All right. Um, yeah. But something where we will disagree. Something new and different for us. Yes, exactly. Um, we got to talk about Westworld episode three. Okay. I am, I am finally actually really timely caught up. Episode. Time. Yeah. So anyone who's not in for the frivolity who actually managed to make it this far. Thanks for being there. We'll see you next week. Bobby's like, wait, we're fighting about Governor Abbott and we're both employees at the state of Texas. Frivolity, frivolity, pivot, pivot. I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about me. <laughs> I have tenure. Bring it on. Oh my God, that's great. Um, I'm not worried about you either. No. Uh, Westworld episode three, the absence of field. Um, so obviously the, you know, the, the show had a, a little bit of a theme of, negative space it had uh the, the the sort of in case you weren't sure what the you know what sort of absence of field might signify they decide to have this very awkward conversation where the dallas exec uh or the the one executive is talking to charlotte about um Sarek. well he's like a black hole like you can't directly observe him but you can infer that he's there there's a trillion dollars of global economic value it must all be his he's the trillion dollar man um, okay, I get it. I get it. There's there's negative space, and then and then by extension, once we see that, we can see the the um, the human and synthetic uh, beings on the show all trying to fill their own space and define themselves. Are they just voids? What else is it? A lot of maternal themes here. Um, God, there's so much stuff here. Where do you want to dig in? So let me, I have a meta point and then a, a, a something that's been really bugging me. So here's the meta point. What Karen and I, I think, both loved about episode three is what I think a lot of the most sort of in it, you know, I found the secret websites two years ago, people <laughs> um, are objecting to about episode three, which is for the first time in three seasons, here's an episode of Westworld full of exposition. Um, right here's an episode of Westworld where the characters are actually telling you what is happening and why. Um, <laughs> right, I mean the the scene, the Dolores Caleb scene on the pier when oh, Dolores yeah. like lays out everything. I mean that it works like this and. And, and you're, you know, this is, you know, and not only, I mean, it's not just exposition, it's exposition where it's pretty darn clear what they're setting up, right? So, you know, I think Karen and I thought it was like a remarkably pellucid episode of Westworld, which I think is exactly why it's received some criticism from people. Because it's like, wait, no, you're supposed to like leave more, more uncertain for us. So then there's a pivot. Here's the big question I don't know the answer to who whose pearl is inside charlotte's head i know oh i think that is an awesome mystery what are your current working theories and what do you infer i have it down to two okay so said before you give me your your theories let me just observe like the strongest clues of course come when they had their heart to heart up in the in the hotel and i think they did a, a masterful job of giving it somewhat sexual overtones but also somewhat maternal overtones 
and including or maybe or maybe somewhat childlike overtones right so the brilliant way they set that up by first documenting robo charlotte not knowing how to cuddle up and spoon with her kid right and then you see dolores do it and then they kind of give you the glamour shot of the very maternal uh you know uh, comforting position they take on the bed so it comes off to me more maternal so so i was thinking teddy at first like they stuck teddy in the body teddy's too obvious right and he and he doesn't she's talking before she becomes before a mystery pearl becomes more charlotte which changes and i want and, to and like kills the predator right right well she discovers herself and there's a whole big setup about like i feel charlotte's you know there's a whole like classic sci-fi the the body's rejecting the host or right. I don't know how that works though when it's not really the body and um, I'm not sure where the Charlotte, maybe there's some sort of memory sort of uh, mental map overlay and Charlotte's persona has been mapped into the Star Trek would call it a memory engram. Well, or yeah, that's right. The positronic uh, network has it uh, overlaid on it. So maybe there's something like that going on, but it didn't sound like Teddy, but it was very stylized at first. So who's the, who's the childlike relation to Dolores, she didn't have a kid. Nope, she is a kid. It's herself. It's her father. Well, it certainly could be her dad. It's, so, so my two guesses. I have two. I just, I just to get on the record. My two guesses are: it's Peter Abernathy, right, her father, who we saw a lot of in season one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or since she'd want to treat him in that maternal way. Or it is sort of a different Dolores boot. Right, a sort of more basic, sort of less sophisticated Dolores Pearl that you know is is running sort of an earlier version of Dolores Argos edition. Yeah, I I like the idea that it's Abernathy and her father because it it it's it's something that uh, that is part of the cycle of life that that there comes a time when you're caring for your your parent in that way, and that's actually a theme of her caring for him. I guess there's a question about whether it's plausible enough that he could effectively take on the task of trying to operate as Charlotte and immediately kind of head out there and do these things. That's not well set up in the story uh, that preceded, especially from season one, right? Mm -hmm. That Peter Abernathy would be able to operate in that way if liberated from his loop. Um, But I like it. And and it'd be really lame if they went with some, somebody you don't fully understand yet. It needs to be somebody you can understand. I, okay, I like that. I agree that it did, that the language patterns don't fit for Teddy. Well, plus, I mean, so who did? So who's in? Remember the security guy from from the, from the from two weeks ago, right? The the yeah. security guy who she kills and then puts somebody right. else in. Martin, yeah. So who's in? Who's in Martin? I think that's Teddy. That would make a ton of sense. Right. I think that's yeah. Teddy. Like Teddy is her protector. Like Teddy yeah. is her is her. Okay, insider. I agree with you on that. I hadn't thought about that. Ted, that is Teddy. So I think. So so, 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 wait, so so there are five pearls, right? Besides uh-huh. b- besides Dolores herself. So Bernard is one, right? Mm-hmm. Teddy is one. Um, Maeve, we now know, was one of the five she smuggled out, although somehow Maeve ends up in... Wait, is that right that it was one of the five she got out? I thought that they got out. I think the whole idea is that Maeve's pearl... Oh, I'm sorry. It's now Ciroc. Ciroc has it. Ciroc, because there's somebody right. else at Delos. I'm sorry. You're right, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, sorry. Let me back up. Um, Okay, Dolores, uh, sorry, so sorry, Bernard, Teddy, right? Yeah. And then that leaves three, right? Right. Um, One is in Charlotte, right? Yeah. One is 
one is in um, security guy whose name I don't remember, Stubbs. right? Oh, no, 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 not Stubbs. Yeah, the yeah the Irish sounding the Irish guy, and then and then there's one more. Yeah, um, from her story, who would she plausibly have wanted? So, what about the madam? I mean, she was closer to Maeve, but like the other woman in the saloon, you know, yeah, remember who I'm talking about? lame because she didn't have enough of a role before. But who did? I mean, so, so yeah. the other, I mean, right, it, you know, Teddy, obviously, her father, obviously. Oh, is there any way, could she have Hector to have as a weapon against Maeve in the event that that, that'd be kind of a fun thing later on. But uh, so I, I love like, and it's so clear that they want us to be puzzling over who is in Charlotte's head. Oh, yeah. No, that was really well done. Yeah. Okay, so I think because of the way she jumped into sex with uh, ex-husband Jake when he comes home, I feel like that can't be Abernathy. Not because not because it's a, a guy in there, but just because like it, that just seems like such a stretch for the character of Peter yeah. Abernathy that he'd be, you know, I guess you're supposed to think he's struggling, like that Charlotte's in there. And so it's partially him or whoever it is, and part of it's Charlotte. So you could say, well, that wasn't Abernathy choosing to to go sexual like that. But the idea that man or woman, that's not the point. The idea that he went sexual so quickly seems a little odd for that character. Whereas if it was an other iteration of Dolores, right. maybe. So the other thing about, I don't think they set that up very well with her either. The other thing that I really liked about this episode is it ties up a whole big sort of thing I had struggled with during season two, which is why is, does there seem to be such a gap between what Charlotte is trying to accomplish in the park after the massacre and what the other Delos people are trying to accomplish, right? Like there was, there was always this weird tension between what Charlotte was in the park trying to deal with in the cleanup phase and everybody else. And now we know part of what was going on was because Charlotte's the mole. Yeah. Yeah. That was awesome that, that she was the mole. And uh, um, who do you think the other mole then would be? What do you mean? Who's, what, Charlotte's the mole. No, Sarek says that I have another person. Oh, in, you know. in Delos, right? But not necessarily Delos, in the park. Maybe we're not supposed to know. Maybe it's just going to be someone to become a character. Or maybe it's the man in black. Because the, that's the other, the other looming you know, omnipresence here is, yeah. is the man in black. Yeah, we're missing that. that what a great character. Um, I, I, I mean, I, it was a lot of exposition. I really liked it. Oh, um, another clue that goes against the Peter Abernathy inside of Charlotte theory. So she chokes out the molester. True. And, and, and basically has the apotheosis moment. Like, I'm really rediscovering myself as I do this. I'm a predator. I don't think Abernathy says any of that stuff. Then again, I don't know who would other... Well, I, I don't know which of the... Which unless, it's the like, unless it's like raw Dolores. Right. In which case, yeah, it could be an earlier Dolores. Or maybe it's the melding. Maybe Charlotte was the predator. Yeah. I mean, she was, she was aggressive enough to rise to the... She was set up and set up as a character, as a human as this hyper-aggressive and successful and bold executive who we now know was even bolder and more aggressive than we thought because she was actually spying for Sarek the whole time. Um, I really like just to pick on some other smaller things. Uh, who says Sarek? Because when you say Sarek, I think it's like Sarek from Star Trek. Oh, that's, that's why I keep doing that. It's not on purpose. Sarek. Um, Charlotte's son. I like it that they have the son know that he's a fake, that, that she's not her. And that they kind of play it off at first as like a false trail. Like, no, he, he, he's just saying like, you're not a mommy because you're just a bad mommy like you've always been. But then as that scene concludes, 
he says, I want my real mommy back. It's like, no, no, he knows that is not his mom. Um, and it reminded me of one of my favorite underappreciated movies. And I forget the name of it, but there's a, a rom-com with Nick Cage and Taya Leone set around uh, Christmas time where uh, like he's a super high flying corporate exec who's, who's lonely and he has kind of a Christmas Carol kind of chance to relive the choice he made to not the, fam- the, the family man, the family man. Yeah. And, um, and he gets to kind of live this alternative timeline where he stayed with his girlfriend, Taya Leone. And it, now he doesn't have a ton of money or power and all the rest. He's got this wonderful family, including the super cute daughter. And the daughter immediately knows it's just, you know, she's like, I don't know who you are. You're not my dad, but um, it struck me as, not inspired by that, but the same kind of move. Um, I, I just have to say, I, I'm loving it. And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited for what, I, I, I'm sad that we're already three episodes and then there are only seven left. Yeah, that's tough. What about, um, what do you think of, so Dolores is, there's the great thematic juxtaposition, obviously, is Dolores says there's Big Brother and it's not just that it observes everything and it's not just that it's an AI to, know what's coming, but it is then feeding back the, the best estimate of where your life path will go to decide to go ahead and lock you in. So it's I mean, sort isn't, of- Isn't this a sci-fi trope, right? That if you know oh, the future, you'll, you'll find a way to make it happen? Right, no, exactly. No, it's, it's, uh, it's, this is Matrix combined with Foundation Trilogy, which I've mentioned a few times. As I've combined seen. with The Circle, combined with Black Mirror, combined with, with- All that stuff, but, it, but it's very specifically like, it's, it's not just that, and, and they even have Cal say at some point, you know, I know all about this social media surveillance and, and, a, and a line that I, I laughed when I saw it or heard it because I was like, oh, they just had to say this to try to like tamp down the lawyerly blah, blah, blah. They, they just have her say something about, or he, they have him say something about, this was all long before the privacy laws. <laughs> it's like, it's like... <laughs> So for whatever reason, there's a time when there's no privacy related law and then all this crazy shit happens and then it's too late. I guess the laws were enacted later, but now it's too late. We already maybe, maybe, maybe the time before the privacy laws is the time after the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe so. Maybe so. Um, let's see. Uh, this episode, this episode was recorded quote before the privacy laws. <laughs> before the privacy laws. I like that. Um, so what's that being set up against? We have, uh, uh, how do you want me to say it? Sarek, is that it? Sirak. Sirak. I'll get it eventually. Accent on the rock. Sirak sets up his own countervailing argument to Maeve, you know, previously saying um, uh, Rehoboam is changing. Yes, humans deserve to be exterminated for all the horrible things we've done before, which is a ridiculous claim, but you get it. And they says, Bob, but things are much better now because now we have this AI and we're actually improving the world. So it's, the classic tension right do we want do we want the ugly messes that come with free will or do we want the uh the will of the wisp of chasing perfection that comes from having uh top-down control um and i can't yet tell where the showrunner's sympathies lie right dolores is set up as an anti-hero and maves is set up as a hero but that framing we just described feels to me like they're setting ambiguity well, they're certainly creating ambiguity. And, and actually, the, the fairest and most legitimate, if they really want to make a, a, a policy statement, from my perspective, um, showing that there is no resolving those two things, that those two things have to be intention. And, and maybe the, the resolution you got to get to is for Dolores or maybe Cal as Dolores' 
eventual conscience. Uh, and maybe Maeve both realizing that there's elements of truth in both these visions, but, but you can't burn it all down and have just the one side. You have to have the balance, which is a Star Wars-like observation. Uh, or as one of my kids said the other day, the Jedi don't seem really smart because it seemed like they were totally in charge and there were no Sith. And then they were told, here's a guy that's going to bring balance to the Force. Well, what, did you, what did you think he was going to do? <laughs> he wasn't going to make you guys even more in charge. You are the chosen one. <laughs> Anakin. Uh, you know what they need to do? They need to reboot the original, not the, sorry, not the originals. They need to reboot the prequels and like turn them into some good version of the prequels. No. Yes. No, Bobby, no. Yes. That's what we need. No. Um, all right. Is there anything else to say? I feel like we've uh, run this to the ground. I mean, I'm sure there is, but you know, the, 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 somehow we, we go to bed, we wake up the, um, one of my friends from college put this, uh, tweeted this, that, um, it's like we're in the movie Groundhog Day, only there are consequences. Oh, you mean in our actual lives, not, yes. not, not Westworld. Yes. Yeah. There is, uh, I, I think that this is early days. I yep. think we are in our house, at least we're in about the 14th. I think today was day 14 of, of shelter in place and lockdown. Today was, today was uh, 20 for us. Yeah. Um, I, I, think it's, I, think it's, I think it's the middle of June at the absolute earliest before any of this gets relaxed. And that presupposes a heck of a lot of development on the testing front. I, I, I think that testing, but also even with ubiquitous testing, I'm not sure how responsible, responsible it would be to alleviate the brakes that are keeping the car from rolling down the hill. It's, it's not that we're putting the brakes on because once the car is brought to a stop, it'll stay stopped. Right. The brakes are keeping us from rolling down a hill. You remove the shelter in place and business closure rules before there's any reasonable degree of therapeutics or some almost comically uh, obsessive testing and retesting that's going on constantly, something that couldn't be done unless it's something that everyone actually could have on their person just to be testing themselves and reporting back. I, I just don't see until they've got um, treatments and therapeutics that make this not a fatal scenario for most people or the vaccine, um, how we really get beyond this or unless herd immunity kicks in, which assumes that we won't get, uh, won't get a variant strain that makes people who've been infected previously, uh, vulnerable again. What a terrifying thought. As I've said, I, I've said this, I think the last two times we've recorded, I'll say it again. It's going to get worse before it gets better. That's right. No, that's certainly the case. We're only at the early stages here in Texas. Other places already are at the, uh, you know, the, the, the roller coaster is tipping over the hill and is, is racing down the terrifying far side. And that's a, that's coming for everybody. There, there's a happy note to end on. Jesus Christ. One, one of these days, guys, we're going to have something happy to say at the end of this podcast. But until then, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Stay safe and sheltered out there. Adios.